episode 267 of the Truth Quest podcast, the truth about the cycle of violence, Israelis and Palestinians. Please support the podcast by visiting truthquestshirtfactory.com, where we produce shirts inspired by various podcast episodes. All shirts are $30 and include free shipping. Recently, Hamas exacted a brutal attack on Israel, slaughtering young adults at a music festival, going house-to-house murdering families, raping women, and taking hostages, killing over 1,300 Israelis, taking 120 hostages. Israel, of course, responded with a devastating bombing of Gaza, so far killing more than 2,300 people, including over 700 children. Israeli strikes have reportedly hit residential buildings, mosques, schools, hospitals, and universities. Israel intensified its already crippling blockade by cutting off all food, water, and electricity and ordered the expulsion of 1.1 million residents of northern Gaza. An eminent ground invasion of Gaza by Israel is forthcoming. With that as a backdrop, we have cheerleaders from both sides coming out of the woodwork, pontificating and justifying their team's actions. Getting into a conversation with someone on this topic can be about as contentious as any conversation you might ever have. The old expression is to avoid talking about politics and religion. To that list, I would add the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. What I thought I would do in this episode is, to the best of my ability, present both sides. There are people who earn doctorate degrees in this topic, so you'll have to forgive me for the 30,000-foot presentation. I will, for the first time in TruthQuest podcast history, refrain from offering my opinion on the subject at hand. I consider this episode no different than a college research paper, with the only difference being it is being presented verbally. So what is the history of the territory now known as the State of Israel? Anyone who has spent any amount of time in a synagogue or a Christian church of any kind knows that in the Bible, the land known as Israel was granted by God to the Jewish people. This is the region that Jesus Christ called home. During this period in history, the region was called Judea and was dominated by the Jews. Throughout the course of history, the region where Israel resides came under the control of various geopolitical powers before and after Christ, including the Assyrians, Babylonians, Persians, Romans, Byzantines, Arabs and Muslims, Mongols, and finally the Ottoman Empire who ruled the region for four centuries prior to its defeat in World War I. In 1917, the British government signaled its support for the establishment of a Jewish state in Israel with something called the Balfour Declaration, which was a letter written by British Foreign Secretary Arthur Balfour to Lionel Walter Rothschild, who was a prominent Zionist. It expressed the British government's support for a Jewish homeland in Palestine, which was then still under the rule of the Ottoman Empire. When the Ottoman Empire collapsed, They ceded the region to the League of Nations, and it was placed under the rule of the British in 1920 under an order called the British Mandate. The indigenous Arabs understandably opposed this design, asserting Arab rights over the former Ottoman territories and sought to prevent Jewish migration. Pause. From a libertarian perspective, or for that matter, a fairness perspective, I have to call bullshit here. Who the hell is the League of Nations to make a declaration and take away someone else's land? Anyways, Jewish migration from Eastern and Central Europe surged from 1922 to 1947 as Jews fled persecution and the destruction of their communities during the interwar period, and of course following the Holocaust during World War II, which resulted in the murder of more than 6 million European Jews. 
Some of these Jewish migrants bought land in the region from absentee landlords who had been given title by the Sultan of the Ottoman Empire, which displaced Arab families who had previously lived there. They began pushing back, and violence often resulted. Pause. I want everyone to put themselves in the shoes of the people living in that region during this time. Think about the home you live in right now or the home you grew up in. And then imagine that the political authority running your local government simply hands over the town to, I don't know, the United Nations, who then grants the power to another government to administer the town. They, in turn, chop it up into various regions and just decree it so. Next thing you know, you're booted out of your home in order to make way for a migrant family from another country. Under what worldview is that justified? The pro-Israel claim is that the land of Israel was stolen from the Jews by the Romans. So they are simply taking back what was theirs. In 1947, the UN voted to divide Palestine into separate Jewish and Arab states and make Jerusalem an international city. Arabs rejected the plan, which was later dropped. Then comes 1948. The day after that British mandate I mentioned expired on May 14th, the Jewish People's Council met in Tel Aviv and established the State of Israel thus beginning the Israeli-Arab War, with five Arab states fighting against the creation of the State of Israel. The U.S. officially recognized the new nation later that day. The USSR acknowledged it three days later. Now, at this point, Jewish settlers, through the assistance of the Zionist movement, which basically helped with the purchase of land in the region and raised money for Jewish migrants to make their move, they only owned about 7% of the land in what is now Israel. Pause. The pro-Israel crowd will argue that the current residents did not own the land, that if you make the argument that the land was owned by anyone, it was owned by the Ottoman Empire. They might additionally add that it doesn't matter who owned it at that point because it was stolen from the Jews centuries prior by the Romans. So during this period, 1948, and the creation of the State of Israel, approximately three-quarters of a million Palestinians fled or were expelled, or about 80% of the Palestinian population. Israel barred the refugees from returning to maintain its Jewish majority. Many refer to this as ethnic cleansing, or known as the Nakba, which translates to catastrophe. The territory was divided into three parts, Israel, the West Bank, and the Gaza Strip. Egypt and Jordan retained control of the Gaza Strip and the West Bank, respectively, until 1967. So let me just give you a sense of the geography over there. Gaza is a 147-square-mile piece of land at the southwest corner of Israel on the Mediterranean Sea, bordering Egypt. It currently has a population of about 2 million people, half of whom are under 18 years old. The West Bank is a landlocked 2,200-square-mile region bordered by Israel on one side and Jordan on the other, and it has a population of roughly 3 million people. And at this point in history, it probably took up about 60% of the land mass of the state of Israel. Now, Jerusalem itself was divided, as I mentioned, and was, of course, a disputed city. It was cut in two after the 1948 Arab-Israeli War. Israel controlled the western portion, and Jordan controlled the east. Israel, however, captured the entire city after the 1967 Six-Day War, as we'll discuss in a minute. To someone coming in relatively cold to this whole thing, the map of Israel in 1947-1948 looks absolutely ridiculous. You've got the Gaza Strip on the bottom left corner of the country. Then right in the middle is the West Bank, with Israel territory kind of filling in the rest of the area. 
1956 rolls around, Egypt nationalized the Suez Canal and barred Israeli ships from using it and the Straits of Tehran, another shipping route. Israel, aided by Britain and France, invaded Egypt. 1964 rolls around. Palestinian Liberation Organization, the PLO, was formed in Egypt. The organization's initial goals were to unite various Arab groups and create a liberated Palestine in Israel. A group known as Fatwa, led by military leader Yasser Arafat, took control of the organization. Fast forward three years, and we have the Six-Day War, 1967. That essentially grew out of the previous Suez Canal conflict. Egypt ordered the UN troops out, closed the Straits of Tehran again to Israel, and planned a secret attack against Israel. In a preemptive strike, Israel attacked Egypt, Jordan, and Syria, captured the Gaza Strip, the West Bank, East Jerusalem, the Syrian territory of Golan Heights, and the Sinai Peninsula. This, of course, brought millions of Palestinians under Israeli military occupation. I want to make a point that the pro-Israelis often make about the creation of the PLO and the Six-Day War. That being the former came before the latter, meaning the PLO was formed before Israel took Gaza and the West Bank as part of the 1967 war. They feel compelled to make that argument in order to refute the claim that the PLO was formed in order to fight Israel's occupation. Fast forward a few more years to 1973, the cycle of violence continues with the Yom Kippur War. It started when Egypt and Syria attacked Israel on Yom Kippur, the holiest day of the Jewish year. The war was an attempt to reverse the defeat in 1967. Despite being caught by surprise, the Israelis counterattacked and won. Now we go to 1979 and the Camp David Accords, which was an Israeli-Egyptian peace deal set up by President Jimmy Carter and signed by Egyptian President Anwar Sadat and Israeli Prime Minister Menachem Begin. Sadat was assassinated two years later. Also in 1979, Israel began the gradual withdrawal from the Sinai Peninsula. So now we're going to talk about the period of time between 1987 and 1993. The Palestinians staged the first of two uprisings called the First Palestine Intifada in Gaza, Israel, and the West Bank using mass boycotts, civil disobedience, and attacks on Israelis. The Intifada lasted more than five years, ending in September of 1993 with the Oslo Accords, which declared the PLO as a representative for the Palestinian people and recognized Israel's right to exist in peace. 1995 rolls round and Oslo II was signed, which the PLO recognizes the state of Israel, and Israel allows Palestinians limited self-government in Gaza. Fast forward to 2000, Palestinians, frustrated over failures to create the Palestinian state, begin the second intifada in September, which lasts until February 2005. It's estimated that more than 3,100 Palestinians and nearly 1,000 Israelis were killed. This led to the Palestinian people's autonomous control of the West Bank and Gaza. Pause. I want to draw a parallel between these two groups that I have not seen or heard from others. That being the parallel between the three Jewish revolts against the Romans, which I didn't discuss earlier, but take my word for it, there were three, and they were nasty. The Romans destroyed the Jews each time. I want to compare that to these two intifadas by the Palestinians against the Israelis. What were the two groups fighting for? Do they have anything in common? 2005, we see the end of the Second Intifada, and Israel withdraws from Gaza but retains control. 2006-2007, to 
Hamas wins the majority of the Palestinian Legislative Council elections in Gaza, replacing the PLO. Then, as part of a failed coup sponsored by America, Israel, and Egypt, violence breaks out between basically the PLO and Hamas. Hamas wins in the Battle of Gaza, leading to the PLO ruling the West Bank and Hamas ruling Gaza. The armed takeover of Gaza by Hamas in 2007 prompted Israel and Egypt to impose a blockade on Gaza, which greatly restricted the movement of people and goods into and out of the land, leading some to describe Hamas as more of a trustee to a prison population, or worse, a concentration camp. I'm going to dive into both Hamas and the prison concentration camp references in a minute. So let's finish out this timeline. 2008 rolls around, you get a continuation of the cycle of violence. Israel launches a major military campaign against Hamas in Gaza after increased rocket fire from militants. The fighting ended in January of 2009 with 1,400 Palestinians killed, and they claim 13 Israelis. 2014, Hamas kidnapped and killed three Israeli teens in the West Bank, igniting the Gaza War, in which rocket attacks and airstrikes kill 2,200 Palestinians and 73 Israelis. That war lasted 50 days and ended with a truce. A UN report claimed both sides committed war crimes. Fast forward to today, October 2023, and we have the slaughter by Hamas that I opened the episode with. I don't know about you, but I'm exhausted. Now that you have some history as a backdrop, I'm going to present a series of arguments for and against both sides of this tragedy in order to give you a sense of what a mess this is. Let me be clear. These are simply declaratory statements that I came across from pro-Palestinian and pro-Israelis. If you feel strongly about either side, you are going to get angry with some of the stuff I'm going to say. Let's start with the Palestinian people in the land known as Palestine. First off, there is no such thing as an independent country called Palestine. It is a region ruled by a number of empires. I already covered that earlier. One little tidbit I learned that I thought was uh, interesting is the fact that the Jerusalem Post was called the Palestine Post until 1948. That's a Jewish newspaper, mind you. The sad truth about the Palestinian people living in Gaza and the West Bank is the Arab world uses them as pawns to stroke war with Israel. While the Palestinians bear the brunt of attacks from Israel, the Arab world points to the evil acts of Israel and screams for war. Things calm down for a while, and the cycle of violence commences again, Rinse, repeat. On top of all that, Arab nations in the region refuse to accept refugees from Gaza and the West Bank. The pro-Israeli side argues, given the fact that the Palestinian people elected Hamas, a terrorist group, they get what they deserve when the terrorist group performs acts of terror on a neighbor. To which the pro-Palestinian side argues, collective punishment is a war crime. Why punish all the people of Gaza for the sins of a few? Then the pendulum swings back to the Israeli side who would say, you started it by slaughtering innocent Jewish people, to which the other side points to their own deaths at the hands of Israelis. The cycle of violence continues. Any fair-minded person would agree that Israel has a natural right to defend itself from an attack. However, it does not have the right to commit war crimes against a besieged civilian population. Nor does Hamas have the right to commit war crimes against another civilian population. This argument is further complicated by the fact that Israel is not defending itself against an external aggressor, rather an imprisoned internal population that also 
has a natural right to resist military occupation. See how complicated this gets? Before presenting more arguments from both sides of this conflict, let's spend a few minutes on Hamas. Hamas, originally the Islamic Brotherhood, was actually encouraged by Israel as a way to counteract the PLO. Kind of like the U.S. with Osama bin Laden against the USSR. You create and prop up a monster because he serves your interests, and then fight the monster you created decades down the road. I swear, the longer I live, the more I come to understand that the people in power in this world are largely incompetent, immoral, stupid, arrogant, or all four. Why did Israel prop up Hamas? Because they were useful. Why were they useful? Because they were opposed to this two-state solution, just like the majority of Israelis. The PLO, however, was pushing for a two-state solution. If I may state the obvious, Hamas is not shy about its hatred for Israel. Right in the Charter, Chapter 7 states Muslims must kill the Jews. Chapter 12 says their mission is to destroy the state of Israel. Until 2006, Hamas did not even recognize Israel as a state. They are, of course, supported financially by Iran, who has repeatedly stated that they wish to wipe Israel off the map and, of course, destroy the United States as well. Additionally, Hamas pays bounties to the families of Palestinians that perpetrate violence against Jews. And Hamas hides among and or behind Palestinian civilians, using them essentially as human shields. They set up operations in and around hospitals and schools, which of course the Israelis regularly strike, which of course leads to the inevitable pictures you see in the media about dead Palestinian women and children. Israel, to their credit, tend to announce most of their strikes ahead of time so the civilian population can get away, but collateral damage always occurs. I've read that Israel has even developed some kind of explosive device that they drop on the top of a structure that they're about to hit. The explosion literally shakes the entire building, letting the inhabitants know what is about to happen. How insane is all this? As an impartial outside observer, as I'm writing this down and gathering my thoughts, this is absolute lunacy. You know what? It's not lunacy. It's, it's psychotic. Let's jump back into the arguments made by both sides of this conflict. Another pro-Palestinian argument comes in the form of a question. That being, what crime did the people of Gaza commit other than being born there? This, of course, is followed by a question from the other side. What crimes did those 250 young people slaughtered at the music festival by Hamas commit? Or the families huddled in their homes, executed, and or burned? What crimes did the women who were raped commit? What about the hostages Hamas took? Cycle of violence. As I mentioned, many point out that the Palestinians living in Gaza are essentially living in a prison or a concentration camp. Others compare it to an apartheid state. They say when Hamas strikes out against Israel, it's the equivalent of a slave revolt or a prison riot. When Ben Shapiro and others liken the recent brutal slaughter by Hamas of innocent Israelis to a group of Mexicans coming across the border and brutally attacking American citizens, they're not being honest and certainly not being unbiased. A better analogy may be Native Americans leaving their reservation to attack settlers in the surrounding area. They literally have no power. And what's the response going to be? bomb or slaughter those in the reservation? In 2022, Amnesty International issued a report arguing that Israel has maintained, quote, a system of oppression and domination over the Palestinians going all the way back to its establishment in 1948, one that meets the international definition of apartheid. They joined Human Rights Watch and the Israeli group Salem in arriving at that conclusion. 
Israel argues that they have no choice but to wall in the Gazians and given the violence perpetrated by Hamas against them. They also point out that its own Arab citizens enjoy equal rights and flourish in Israel. As a matter of fact, 20% of Israel's population is Arab. A Muslim sits on the Israeli Supreme Court. They also point to the thousands of Palestinians who live in Gaza and work in the state of Israel. This is where the refusal by surrounding and Arab nations to accept the Palestinian refugees really comes into play. How might things be different if a majority or even a minority of the civilian population was able to escape Gaza? To which the pro-Palestinians would argue, why should they have to leave their homeland? This shit's so complicated and so messy. As you probably figured out by now, there is plenty of blame to go around, both Palestinians and the Israelis. There have been numerous documented atrocities committed by the IDF, the Israeli Defense Forces, against Palestinians. They, of course, regularly run military operations in Gaza, where civilians are killed and wounded, including children, and hundreds of structures get destroyed. There are reports of IDF soldiers snapping the arms and legs of children who throw rocks at them. There's reports of snipers shooting at ambulances and shooting Palestinians in the stomach and legs. If you look at what the IDF has done to Gaza just since the most recent attack, it can only be described as mass devastation. The all-in crowds on both sides of this issue will argue that the other is responsible for provoking the latest attack or retaliation for the recent attack. It's just a cycle of violence. I briefly mentioned the two-state solution a minute ago. Israel does not want that and apparently is willing to do anything to sabotage any attempts to arrive there. How can they, with a terrorist organization firing missiles and attacking innocent people? How can they when these same people teach their children to hate Jews? For those reasons, Israel regularly argues that they have no partner for peace. A lot of blame to go around here. The thing is, history did not start yesterday. While the Jews' claim to the land or the region known as Palestine goes way back, at least to what, 1400 BC? Islam, on the other hand, did not start until 610 AD with Muhammad's visitation by an angel. Obviously, violence against non-Muslims ensued. So it's disingenuous to pretend that violence against Jews on the part of Muslims started in 1948 with the establishment of the State of Israel. It is equally disingenuous for the Israelis to pretend Arabs in that region at the time have no property rights. It's complicated. Before I end, I want to spend a moment on the United States and other Western nations when it comes to this mess. They bear a lot of responsibility for the ongoing madness in the Middle East. Given that Hamas is financially supported by Iran, makes them useful to the United States government, who is always looking for the next boogeyman. The U.S. claims support for Israel, spending billions of dollars with our domestic defense contractors, who then ship the shit to Israel. Ever wonder why so many members of Congress and presidents sprint to the microphone every time Israel gets hit with a terrorist attack to offer their undying support and devotion to Israel? Look at their list of donors for the answer. My guess is you will see the likes of Lockheed Martin, General Dynamics, and others the same ilk. Most members of Congress are bought and paid for. War is good for business. At the same time, the U.S. and many other Western countries support Palestinians financially via humanitarian aid, which everyone knows is stolen by Hamas the minute it crosses the Egyptian border. It's a cycle of insanity on top of a cycle of violence. Hell, Biden just released $6 billion to Iran a couple weeks ago, and in a speech just last night, he acknowledged that Iran supports Hamas. So he's giving money to Iran who supports Hamas. You figure it out. 
That payout was preceded by Obama's pallets full of cash, I believe it was just under $2 billion, that he sent over to the mullahs, what, a dozen years ago? All the while, the Iranians have declared death to Israel and America, pursued a nuke, which apparently they now have all the material necessary to construct, and now they simply need a mechanism to deliver it, a ballistic missile or two, so they can hit Israel and set one off in the atmosphere of the United States in an EMP, an electromagnetic pulse bomb, that will cripple our electric grid. Here's a thought-provoking question from the pro-Palestinians to the Western countries. What if the Palestinians had won the 1947 war and herded millions of Jews into the Gaza Strip and West Bank and restricted their travel? Would you have supported the Palestinians for the next 50-plus years? If there's one takeaway from this episode, it is that both sides are to blame for the cycle of violence, obstinacy, immorality, cruelty, and death. Anyone feeding you one side of this conflict without the other is doing you a disservice, whether that be someone like Ben Shapiro, who only points the finger at Hamas and the Palestinians, or some whacked-out left-wing professor on the Alphabet Soup conspiracy media, who only points the finger at Israel. There are too many moving parts to make such simplistic unilateral assessments. And that's the truth about the cycle of violence, Israelis and Palestinians. Please subscribe to the podcast on your favorite platform, share episodes with your friends, and support the podcast by visiting truthquestshirtfactory.com.